Our text this morning is Romans chapter 7 and verse 8, but for context, let's read starting at verse 7 through verse 12. This is the word of the Lord. Let all who have ears to hear, hear the word. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Amen. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, speak now, Lord, we pray. Teach us. Instruct us in righteousness. Give us the mind of Christ more and more. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this body of believers, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, since we have entered Romans chapter 7 territory, we've been talking about the theme of the law and particularly freedom from the law, liberty in the law. Um, And we've been starting to unpack what that means. You may recall that Romans 7 is divided into three sections, logically. The first six verses of Romans chapter 7 deal with the Christian's relationship to the law. What is the Christian's relationship to the law? And the answer that Paul gives is freedom. Freedom from the law in this sense, from its condemnation. The law no longer has the power to condemn all who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus has paid all the sins of all his people of all time. And so the law has no more strength in that sense to condemn us because every sin has been paid in full. There is no outstanding debt left. And then in verses 7 through 12, we see what the law has power to do. What the law has power to do. And we're starting to unpack this idea over the last couple of weeks. And really, what we see here is that the law plays a role as a mirror to show us ourselves as we really are the way God sees us, to see our sin for what it is, and to see God as He is in all His holiness. The law plays that role. It shows us what sin truly is. It is a mirror in that function. And last week, we were really spending our time looking at verse 7, the first verse of this section, where Paul asks this question, what shall we say? Is the law sin? And he raises the question because he's made some pretty provocative statements about the law to this point. If you back up to chapter 7, verse 5, Paul said, for when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law or by the law We're at work in our members to bear fruit to death. At first reading, that may sound like the sin that's uh, the law plays an active role in promoting fruit to death. That sounds like a bad thing. Uh, Another 
statement that Paul has made that would raise the eyebrows of the unbelieving person and the unbelieving Jew in particular would be verse 20 of chapter 5. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Might abound. The law came in not to save, but the law came in to amplify sin. Or if you go back to chapter 4 and verse 15, actually verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, heirs of the promise, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Wrath? That doesn't sound good, Paul. Chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul, you're telling me that it's not possible that the law would save me if I keep it? That the law only gives me a knowledge of my sin? How can that be? So that's why Paul is asking the question in Romans 7, verse 7, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And his answer is, God forbid. May it never be. It's the strongest form of no, no, no that he could say. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. And what we understood by that text is Paul is saying, I didn't know sin intimately in its true form for what it is except the law had shown it to me. The law actually plays a very good function. It's exposing the true ugliness of sin for what it is to my sensibilities. And then he goes on and he says, here's the example, for I would not have known covetousness, lust is the word he uses, strong desire and craving for that which is forbidden. I wouldn't have known that unless the law had said, you shall not covet. We saw that Paul would have known the Tenth Commandment. He was a Pharisee. He was trained in the law. But he didn't understand the sense of the law, the spiritual sense of that Tenth Commandment, which was, you shall not covet in your heart. He was focused totally on the externals. If I comply with an external action or not, I'm fine. That was his view. That was the Pharisee's view. But the law exposed, no, 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 sin is actually lurking within you, Paul. It's not something external to you. And every time you have that craving in your heart for what is forbidden, the law kept on saying to him, where, the law, where it says, unless the law had said, the sense was kept on saying. It repeated in Paul's spiritual hearing, you shall not covet, you shall not covet. It was his kicking against the pricks, against the goads. It was irritating his conscience. The Lord was getting his attention through the power of his law. And that brings us to verse 8. But before we go there, let me just give us a little bit of structure for today. Paul wants in this verse to help us understand the power of sin. That's why the message is titled, The Power of Sin. In verse 8, Paul's going to show us two things. Um, and he's going to continue those two things through the rest of this discourse through verse 12. He's going to show, first of all, that the law, excuse me, that the power of sin is really in these two things. Number one, that it distorts what is holy. It distorts or defiles, either word, what is holy. 
And secondly, that it deceives the sinner. It deceives the sinner. And we're going to see that deception um, really next time, I think, in verses 9 through 12. But for today, let's look at how, the, how sin is powerful in that, it's, in that it has this ability to distort or defile what is good, what is holy. Verse 8, but sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Now, when Paul starts and says, but sin, he's not talking about individual sins. He's talking about sin as an entity. Um, He's personifying sin again as he has for us several times to this point. You remember back in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul said, so that as sin reigned in death, this is our former state when we were in the flesh, Paul says, sin was like a tyrant reigning on the throne, and he was ruthless and relentless in his reign. He was personified like a tyrant there. In chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, Paul personifies sin like a military uh, leader, like a military commander. Chapter 6, verse 12, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it. Obey it, sin, like it's giving commands in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Don't listen to general sin anymore because you don't have to. And don't present your members to Him anymore. Present yourself to God and your members as instruments of righteousness for Him and for His holy purposes. And then He uh, personifies sin as an employer in chapter 6, verse 23, where He says, For the wages of sin is death. Sin is an employer and it pays a wage. And the wage it pays is always death. It's what is deserved for our sin. So here, Paul is continuing, I believe, this theme of personifying sin, and he says this, but sin taking opportunity, very interesting phrase or statement that he makes here. Taking is the word to lay hold of, to grab onto or to seize, and opportunity, aformi in the Greek, is is the word that sometimes is translated occasion, but it really means a starting point. It means a starting point. It means a, in a military operation, the place from which an attack is made, the base, if you will. That's the word that he's using here, opportunity. He says, sin taking opportunity by the commandment or through the commandment. What is he referring to when he says commandment? He's referring to the law of Moses and probably particularly the Ten Commandments because he quoted the Tenth Command in verse 7 of chapter 7. So this is very interesting. He is using the idea of sin as a military commander and he's saying sin as military commander is actively grabbing onto the law of God and making that its base of operations That word opportunity can also be understood in another way, and it's really the same idea, but sometimes it helps to think of the same thing in two different ways so we can put it together. That word opportunity can also be understood as a fulcrum, a fulcrum to describe how 
um, an attack is made. So what's a fulcrum? Well, um, for those of you who are not physicists or haven't studied physics, a fulcrum is like a teeter-totter. That's probably the best example I can think of of a fulcrum in action. You've got your board, your plank, and then you have a pivot point underneath that the board rocks back and forth on. That pivot point, that stable point, is called the fulcrum. So it is a single point on which a lever, the board, rests in, and on which it pivots in order to move something. And the beauty of a fulcrum, the power of the fulcrum, is it allows you to lift a much heavier object than you otherwise would be able to lift with your own hands. So if you were to take a very heavy object and put the fulcrum, the the stationary point close to that heavy object so that you have a long lever. Now when you push with your force on this long lever, you're able to lift a very heavy weight with less effort. That's the idea. Sin uses the law of God like a fulcrum. It positions it, it wedges the law like that block in order to do work. And what's the work that sin is trying to do? Well, he describes it this way. It produced in me all manner of evil desire. Another very interesting word he uses, a strong word when he says produced. Not just to do something, but actually to work it out fully, to completion. That's the word he uses for produced. It's not the potential of work, it's actual work accomplished every time is what he's saying. In fact, it's the same word that he used in Romans 4.15 that we read when he says, because the law brings about wrath, it works out wrath to completion. Wrath, that, that agitation of soul that we have toward God in our unsaved state and that he has toward us because we're lawbreakers. It brings it out. Sin works that out in us fully, he's saying. So he, he's giving his personal testimonies, continuing his line of thinking from verse 7. And what is it that sin produced in him? He says, all manner of evil desire. Um, the ESV reads all kinds of covetousness, or um, the NAS or the LSB says coveting of every kind. It's all manner or all kinds of lust. That's what he's saying. Strong desire for what is forbidden. So what's Paul saying here? He, here's one picture. If the law of God is um, a camp that encircles us, we're in the camp. Sin is like a military officer that infiltrates that camp and establishes its base of, of operations within God's camp in order to wage warfare on us relentlessly and successfully from that base. That's all what is to be understood within this simple phrase in verse 8. Or you could say, sin is like a general who took God's holy law and hijacked it by using it as a fulcrum to work out in him more sin, to produce all kinds of sin, evil desire, lust, the craving for what is forbidden, to disobey God, to turn us against God. And that warfare was very effective, very effective. A successful campaign of attack after attack carried out to completion in my members every time, a process that always gets completed. 
See, in verse 7, Paul's saying that he didn't realize covetousness was an issue of the heart until the law exposed that to him in a personal way. But in verse 8, he's saying, not only did I come to see that I had violated the Tenth Commandment, coveting, in truth, in, in actuality, but that he was breaking it constantly, constantly. And it was, and this is what's important, and he says, and it was sin in him that was doing that the whole time. You see, sin is what distorts and defiles what is best, what is holy, the law of God itself, in order to advance its own evil, sinister purposes. That's the power of sin. So what we have here in verse 8 is actually an illustration or a commentary or an expansion of what he described for us back in verse 5. Look back at verse 5 again. For when we were in the flesh, that is, in the realm of the flesh, in our unsaved state, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. And on first reading, again, it may sound like the law is what is causing the problem, but Paul is clarifying here in verse 8, it's actually sin that's the bandit, that's the culprit behind all of what is going on here working out his own nefarious schemes in us, bearing fruit to death constantly, waging warfare such that that process is producing more and more sin. Sin is begetting sin is begetting sin. So it's a process. Sin is a process, and it seems like there's nothing to stop it. Sin is very successful in carrying out these campaigns with success. We don't just start with death, right? We, Romans 6.23 again, the wages of sin is death. Sin is the starting place, and then there's a process that leads us to the point of death. A, a death where we have died spiritually, we saw that in the garden when Adam and Eve didn't believe God, they believed the devil instead of God. The lie instead of the truth, they died spiritually. There's a physical death that results because of sin. All, sin, all die in this world because of sin, to prove that they're sinners by nature. That's the evidence. They die. And there is an eternal death for those who leave this world in that condition, their natural condition of not having ever dealt with that sin by the blood of Christ. So it's a process. And I, I want to show you this process this morning from James's perspective. Turn with me to James Chapter 1, this was our corporate reading this morning, and I want you to see what this process looks like, what the steps are between um, how sin starts and how it ends in death. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Now stop there. Drawn away is the word that it refers to leading a game animal into a trap. It's a lure. Each one is tempted when he is lured like a game animal 
into a trap and enticed. Enticed. Um, that means baited, successfully baited, hooked, or put into the trap. And what is it that draws us away in the first place? Well, it is lust. Drawn away by his own desires. Same word, epithemia, lust. Strong desire for what is forbidden. That is what leads us, lures us, and then ultimately traps us. So if you were to personify sin here in James's language, sin is like a hunter. It's out to hunt you, to destroy you. Um, let me give you an example. You, you see something or you hear something, um, you read something that God disapproves of. You weren't necessarily thinking of it before, but now that you see it or hear it or thinking it, uh, it's in your mind, you're, you're curious. You're curious about this forbidden thing. You, you want to see it. You want to peer into it even more. You're drawn away after it. That's how it starts. You're entertaining it in your heart. And what happens when you've been drawn and then hooked, baited, enticed? Look what he says next. Then when desire has conceived, this is the word of physical conception of a baby in a mother's womb. There's the starting point to sin in actual form. When the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin like a baby. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So there's the ending point. But it started with lust in the heart that we are drawn away after, that we are enticed by, baited with. And then the thing becomes a reality. And then it begins to grow and develop. And the end of that story is always death. You see the process? So Paul is saying when he was in the flesh, sin waged a warfare against himself, leveraging the law of God, what is good, and distorting it to become a base of operations so that he was um, brought to sinfulness more and more and more. Sin was producing more sinfulness in him. It starts with being led, caught, conceived, grown, and then death. So go back to Romans 7 now. And so you have this process of sin coming into fruition, coming to fruition, maturing and bringing about death. And Paul's saying, look, there was nothing to stop that process in me. Sin was so powerful, I couldn't do anything to stop it. Its success rate was 100%. That's why in Romans 6.19, he says, we presented our members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. That's always the direction it goes. The preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, once made this statement that I found very helpful in this context about the power of sin. He said, sin is, next to God, the most powerful force in the universe. Sin is, next to God, the most powerful force in the universe. That's astounding. Think about that for a moment. Think of God as creator, creating all things by the word of His power out of nothing. He speaks them and they come into being. Think about His 
power in recreation, in regenerating the sinful heart of a person. He, the light of His Word exposes our sin into the innermost recesses of who we are. Hebrews 4 verse 12, for the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Um, The Word of God is very powerful. Think of His power to raise the dead by His same Word. That power that raised Christ from the dead and that raises all of us spiritually to this new life. His Word is where the power is. It is the most powerful. But next to that, sin is the greatest power in the universe. And I think Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is right when we look at this mechanism in Romans 7 verse 8. Sin is an unstoppable process in the realm of the flesh. That's what he's saying. When you were in the flesh, you had no choice but to sin. This is just another way of going back to chapter 6 and saying sin was your master. Sin dominated you. Everything that sin called out for you to do, you did because you wanted to. You loved it. If that's true, loved ones, that sin is as powerful as not just Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, but as the Scripture says that it is, then do you think you can manage sin on your own? See, this is the reason sin is so destructive in our lives. People think that they can manage sin, that sin is like an animal that can be tamed, that they can set a boundary of how far they will go into sin, wading into the pool of sin, so to speak, with intention to come back out when it gets uncomfortable. But really, the bottom drops out from under them, and they're fully submerged into it before they know it. They're totally given over to sin. There is no power to resist that urge in the flesh. That's really the point. There's no power there. Why? Because the will and the affections of the natural man are perfectly aligned with those of sin. They're against God. They hate God. And so what sin says to do against God, the will, the emotions, the mind of the natural man says, yes, I'm in. I'm in. And I think I'm having a pretty good time doing it too. I'm fine. We do what we love, don't we? I didn't make that up, and I'm sure many people have said variations of the same thing, but it's true. We do what we love. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is, right? Jesus said that. Verse 8, this verse 8 that we're looking at is telling us something about the power of sin. It's saying it is so great that we cannot do anything to stop it in our own power. It's too powerful for us. <clears throat> and you know, there is a, there's a physical process in the body that we know of that works kind of like what we're describing what sin does. You know what that is? Cancer. Research, medical research has shown that cancer cells, this is very simplified, of course, for those of you who are medically minded, but it, the cancer cells hijack normal healthy cells in order to replicate their own cancerous cells and spread cancer throughout the body. And guess what the end of that process is? Death. Death. 
Sin is a cancer. It's a spiritual cancer that is benign to our senses until the Lord raises that awareness, until He helps us to see the true nature of sin, that it is destructive and will destroy us. But God has to open our eyes to that truth. I found this so interesting that we talk about the the function of the law in Romans 7 as stirring up sin, as stirring up sin, like in verse 5, that the law arouses these sinful passions in us. But really what Paul is saying in verse 8 is it's sin that is leveraging the law to carry out these evil schemes. Sin is to blame, really. The law is good. The law really plays a very good role, which is for His own, for God's elect, for us, beloved. He has given us an awareness of sin's true nature. He stirred it up to our consciousness so that we see it for what it is and we hate it. But for the unbeliever, it just stirs him to sin more because sin is out of control in his life, carrying out that process we talked about. And then Paul says this, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Or the Greek says, for without law, sin dead. (laughs) What does he mean by that? In what sense would Paul have been without the law or apart from the law? Well, this is a little bit of repeat, but we we saw last time that he, he would have known the law to some degree. I mean, he was trained by Gamaliel. He was exceedingly zealous in the law. So he doesn't mean that he was entirely without law. Well, what does he mean then? He means this. That apart from the law's gracious work of revealing sin to his sensibilities, the law seemed dead to him. It seemed latent, powerless. It, it was not a force to be reckoned with in his life. He didn't see himself as a great sinner. He actually had a pretty good self-esteem. He thought of himself as a, a successful Pharisee who was able to keep the law of God. But you remember, his view of sin was an external view, complying with those external demands of the law, but never touching the heart. And like the other Pharisees, his interpretation of the law would have been interpreted through the lens of other rabbis and elders in Israel who themselves were men of reprobate minds without spiritual understanding, saying, here's what the law means. So you could say this, that Apart from the law, Paul means this by apart from the law. Apart from the law's gracious work as a mirror to show him who he really was. Apart from the law's heart work that God alone can do in his people. Sin was dead. It appeared dead to him. And and there are some counterintuitive ideas in this text. That's what makes it difficult as people read through this. When Paul is saying, for apart from the law, sin was dead, in, in reality, was sin dead? Not at all. Sin was very much alive. He was dead spiritually. He couldn't sense the uh, aliveness of sin, if you will. It was waging a war in him. It was producing death in him. That was his point in verse 5. But <laughs> at the time before he was converted in the flesh... That was just an object of reality. Sin was working out sin in Paul, and it was producing fruit to death from God's perspective. 
When God looked at Paul, all he saw was death, death, death. Paul saw, I'm a fastidious Jew. I'm doing okay. But then when the law comes to him in power, he sees, my goodness, I really have sinned and I'm full of sin. God, help me. He comes to see his true condition. And then that objective reality becomes subjective for him. That's really the point. So he is retrospectively looking back and describing, this is how I was. I wouldn't have been able to see it unless the law and the spirit with the law had opened my eyes to that truth. But now I see it. Brothers and sisters, sin is powerful. It distorts and defiles what is holy and just and good, the law of God. It has zero regard for God and His glory. It hates God, and it wants to destroy you. I had said earlier that sin is an unstoppable process in the flesh. And if that were the end of the story, that would be a very sad story. But praise God, that is not the end of the story. Here is the good news, brothers and sisters. And this is what Paul wants us to understand. And it's going to take a little while for him to say it now that we're in this deep discourse in chapter 7. We're going to experience some more of Paul's pain and our pain before we get to the relief and the remedy. But we're not going to cover it all today. So here's the, the good news that you need to grasp onto if you are a Christian this morning. This process of sin, begetting more sin as a, an endless, ruthless campaign against our souls, can be stopped. Not eradicated completely. Not in this life. But the process does not need to lead to death anymore. That's the big idea that I want you to take away. In the Spirit, we don't have to yield to that process of James 1 anymore. It's not a foregone conclusion that death is going to be the result when, as Luther said, that bird flies over your head. You can't stop birds from flying over your head. That would be like temptation. But you can sure stop them from making a nest in your hair. That was Luther, not me. You can stop the process is the point. How is that? Romans chapter 6, verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Freed from the power of sin. Look at verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. You don't have to. The truth is sin doesn't dominate you anymore. It would have you believe that you are still under its domination and it will still call out commands to you, but you don't need to obey it anymore. You're free in Christ. Look at verse 8 again with me here. And there's a, maybe a little detail, but I think it is often overlooked. Um, at least it was in my experience. Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. What is the tense that he uses? You don't have to be a grammarian to answer this question. What's the tense that he uses for produced? Past tense. He doesn't say Sin taking opportunity by the commandment produces in me all manner of evil desire. 
It doesn't continue to carry out its own wicked schemes to completion every time like it did before. It used to. It produced in me. See, those of us who have been born again, born of the Spirit, we have the Spirit of God who is able to stop that process of death from maturing, coming to completion. Romans 6, 3, here's the truth that undergirds this wonderful notion that this process doesn't have to go to completion anymore. Romans 6, 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Verse 5, for if we have been united together, planted together, grafted together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that's referring to our old nature, our old sin nature, was crucified with Christ. And then this wonderful phrase that now takes on a refreshing meaning where we are in Romans 7, that the body of sin, that is, this body of sin that our members that we still have that has taint, is tainted with sin, might be done away with, or would actually the translation there is, might be brought, um, excuse me, might be deprived of its power. That the body of sin might be deprived of its power. The body of sin when we were in the flesh was not deprived of its power. That's why it was able to carry out these campaigns to successful completion every time. But now that body of sin has been extremely weakened by the Spirit of God indwelling you and me so that we can say no when sin says obey. We don't have to anymore. Praise the Lord. We have been crucified with Christ. That means the penalty for our sin has been paid in full. We have been raised with Christ. That means that the very power that raised Christ from the dead now is in you and will give life to your mortal bodies. That's His promise. Resurrection power, the greater power than the power of sin, is at work in you. Do you see why we're on the winning side, loved ones? The greater power is at work in us. Jesus is now a delight to our souls, is He not? (laughs) Now think about when we're in those moments of temptation. When we're in temptation, again, we do what we love, don't we? If the greatest love that you know is sin, some desire for what is forbidden, if that is your greatest love, guess what? In a moment of temptation, you will act on that sin every time, because that's your greatest love. The soul of a man is rational in this sense. We do what we love. If there is not a greater love that has been presented to your view, to your spiritual sensibilities, than a counterfeit sin, which promises life and joy and peace and all the wonderful things, but delivers death. If you have no greater love than that, you will fall prey to that love, counterfeit love every time. But if Christ is your greater love, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, in those moments of temptation, you will turn to Him and cry out for deliverance. You will see Him as more satisfying than that counterfeit sin, and by God's grace, He will give you the victory to say no in that moment. You must have a greater love in your life. That is what is being cultivated here in all of us as we are learning His Word. 
a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's go back to James just for a moment because I want to now give you um, a few different angles on the remedy for stopping this process of sin that we're talking about, right? And spoiler alert, the short answer is look to Christ every time. Scripture speaks with one voice. Different radio stations perhaps, different styles of music, but they're all singing the same tune, Jesus is Lord. Now, look at James chapter 1 again. Let's see what James' solution is for being drawn away from these desires and enticed and sin conceiving and bringing forth death. Look at verse 21. James 1, 21, Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness strength under control is what that means. The implanted word which is able to save your souls. You already have the word of God abiding in you. That seed is abiding in you. He says, receive what is already implanted in you. That's interesting. That's like Jesus saying, you are already clean by the word I have spoken to you. Now abide in me. Continue hearing my word. This is James's version of the same thing. Receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of a man he was. Verse 25, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it. There's the key. What is this perfect law of liberty? This is tied into, tying into what we're talking about in Romans 7. The law for us who believe has become a law of liberty. It is no longer a law of sin and death. It's not a law that condemns us anymore. Praise God. The law is a law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a law of liberty. So he says, look at the law now that you are in the spirit and continue looking at it. Or another way of saying that is, look at Christ and continue to hear his word. Verse 26, uh, actually finishing 25 and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious, if anyone thinks he's a Christian, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. That's a person who's a hearer and not a doer. A person who is only looking at the law casually, it's like coming to a buffet with every delight that you can imagine for food, and he only takes a little morsel here and there, and then he walks away. He doesn't remember the glory of the buffet because he doesn't spend time there. It's, it's the same as the parable of the sower, these classes of the soil where there seems to be life that springs up for a period of time, but then the cares of this world choke them out and they become unfruitful, or the the light, of the, the light and the heat of the sun dries them out and they wither and they die. 
There's an interest in the word for a time, but there's no abiding there, is what he's saying. That person is a hearer only and not a doer. But how do we know the doers? How do we know that we are really born again and that we are doers? How, How do we stop this process of sin from working its way to completion? We look at this perfect law of liberty and we continue in it. And then he says in 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. If you love Christ, you will demonstrate that by love to others. Orphans and widows in this case, those who are helpless, who need support and help and defense, and holiness, personal holiness. You'll keep yourself unspotted from the world. That will be the new pattern of your life. That's how you know that you are a doer, truly, and not just a hearer of the Word, and that you are looking at this law of liberty intently, and you are abiding in it. I want to give you David's take on this as well. Um, Actually, before we do, let's go to the psalmist's take on this in Psalm 119. Um, Psalm 119.37. Two verses. Psalm 119, 37 and 38. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. What are worthless things? The things that are not the way of God. What is the way of God, brothers and sisters? Who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus Christ is the way. Turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things, Lord. Revive me in your Son, in your Word, the the, the living, eternal Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's the same, same answer to stopping the process of sin. How do we do that? Avert your eyes from what is worthless. Focus on Christ. Look at Him. And then he says in verse 38, establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. There's the key. God, produce the fear of God in my heart through the means of your word as I look at your word. And that fear of the Lord will abide with you, will stay with you, and prevent you from sinning. Look at Christ. Look at the word. David, let's hear his solution in Psalm 40. Psalm 40. You know David and his story, his sin with Bathsheba, his unwillingness to repent for a period of time. Um, Psalm 32 describes from David's own perspective his groaning that he experienced in the flesh while he was unwilling to repent. He describes the hand of the Lord as being heavy upon him, that his bones felt like they were dried out with the drought of summer, that he was lifeless and he felt an intense pressure from God until he confessed and repented, and then he found forgiveness and joy and restoration with the Lord. But in David's case, the Lord had to send Nathan. He sent Nathan to, uh, to show him through a parable, through a story, you are guilty of sin with Bathsheba. The Word of God, the law was brought to bear through the servant of the Lord, Nathan, in that case, but ultimately to get David to turn. And so David has, in Psalm 40, this acute sense of his own sin. And what does he say in verse 11? He says, Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. 
Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. Why would he say that? Because he understood the, with precision the awfulness of his own sin. The law had shown that to him. For innumerable, verse 12, evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. David had enemies externally, people who wanted to kill him. But he also here is describing internal enemy, in enemies. And who's that? That's sin. That's David's sin. Innumerable evils have surrounded me. My own iniquities have overtaken me so that I'm not able to look up. My heart fails me. He's desperate. He is where Paul was when he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the, this body of death? And then he says in verse 13, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. He turns his attention from desperation in himself to the Lord. Lord, deliver me. Make haste to help me. And then in verse 16, here's his concluding statements. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. What is he saying? God, you alone are holy. But I am poor and needy, and I am a wretch. I am a sinner, desperately in need of your deliverance, your salvation. But then he remembers the glorious promise. Yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Brothers and sisters, let this be an encouragement to your soul. You have the ability to stop the process of sin because you are empowered by the Spirit of God. If in fact, the Spirit dwells in you. And the way that He brings deliverance when you sense your own desperation because of your sin is to turn your attention to the Word to this law which is now a law of liberty, which is the Lord Jesus Christ who is for you and not against you. He says, remember that the Lord thinks upon you. Remember that He is your help. He is your deliverer. And He will give you victory moment by moment in those temptations. Sin is no longer master over you. The Lord Jesus Christ reigns in your hearts now. All praise be to God. Friends, there is only one power that is greater than sin in this world. Well, because the power has come to this world, has come down from heaven, and that is the power of God, which alone is able to deal with our sin effectively, which alone is able to put a stop to this deadly process that is at work in all the unconverted, and which tries to work in us, the converted. But God will not allow that for His children. What is this power of God? Well, you could say it's this. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the blood. Remember that song, There is Power in the Blood? We're going to sing that one today as we close. Would you be free from the burden of sin? From your burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. That's where it starts. This blood of Jesus Christ counterintuitively doesn't stain us. It actually cleanses us from our stain of sin. 
1 John 1.7 says that the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. And you remember from Hebrews 9 last week, verses 13 and 14, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies, cleanses for the purifying of the flesh, the externals, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Where is the power, brothers and sisters? in the blood of Christ, in true redemption, in Jesus alone. Friends, has sin been exposed in your heart for what it really is? Have you seen something of the ugliness of sin as a, a snake that was lurking in your hearts, um, destroying you? ruthlessly, relentlessly, before you were able to identify what it really was. And that snake is, is, is something that you now hate. You don't tolerate it. You hate that snake and you want to kill it. That's why Paul says you need to mortify your members which are on the earth. The snake is still in our flesh. It still rears its head, but the Spirit of God is greater than the power of that snake. It's a wonderful story of redemption. The story we saw in the garden is now being played out in each of us where the garden is in, the garden is our hearts. That snake is still there. But Christ is there and He's conquered the snake and He's given you the ability to say no to Him daily. One day, He will completely eradicate that snake and cast Him into the lake of fire forever and with all who obey Him. But for the righteous, those who have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ, they will dwell with the Lord forever. They will be His people, and He shall be their God forever. Sin is powerful because it distorts and it defiles what is good, the law of God. And it is ruthless, but God's power is greater. Praise Him for it. Trust Him for that. Seek Him in His Word and set your mind there. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, and you will find that you are filled with the Spirit on a daily basis. That is the only remedy for this sin. If you do not do that, you will be overrun with sin. It will take a hold of your life and destroy you. Repent. Put your faith in Christ and keep your eyes on Him, and you will live. Next time, Lord willing, we're going to look at another aspect of sin's power, and that is its deceitfulness. Its ability to make us believe lies as though they were true. And that's what Paul is going to spend his time on from 9 through 12 in chapter 7. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to this wonderful truth um, of who we are because of our sin, because of our inheritance from Adam as those who were born sinners and how sin is so ruthless and cunning and deceptive in us and powerful to accomplish its purposes of destruction and death. Father, thank you for opening our eyes to that truth and helping us to see what was going on in us all along, that we now hate what we used to love. And Father, 
Not only that, but you have given us great power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead in order to wage a warfare against sin and to have success on a daily basis in the Spirit by you alone so that you would receive all the glory. Father, we are weak, but you are strong. And your glory, your um, name is exalted in us through our weakness. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that you are at work to save your people. Save your people positionally and legally. Save your people in practice, in life. And save your people ultimately, body, soul, and spirit in the final resurrection. Lord, our trust is in you. Forgive us where we've put trust in ourselves. Forgive us where we continue to have confidence in ourselves. May we repudiate all of that, reject all of that, and rest completely in you. You are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Thank you. Thank you for the family of God. Thank you for the work you're doing at this local body. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.